So the year is 735 BC, and the wicked king Ahaz is sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. Uh, he's a arrogant, pompous, God-hating king. He's a young buck, about 20 years old, has no regard for the Lord or his law or his righteousness. He even went so far as to burn his own son as a sacrifice to foreign gods. He is sitting on David's throne, shaking in his boots. Because to the north of him, in Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, you have um, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, on the throne. And he's in an alliance with the power of Syria under the rule of King Rezin. Now, for their own protection, these two northern kingdoms, Ephraim and Syria, have formed an alliance together. And they are planning to come in, invade Judah, and kill Ahaz. Because Ahaz is an ally with the southern world superpower, Assyria. Not Syria to the north, but Assyria to the south. And Assyria is always on the prowl to conquer, to defeat, to kill, to take. So if Assyria is in alliance with Judah, they can just march right through Judah, come up and destroy Syria and Ephraim. However, if Pekah and Rezin can come down invade Judah first, kill off Ahaz, put some puppet king on the throne who will align himself with the north, then maybe the north has a fighting chance against Assyria. They can defend themselves. Or at the very least, now instead of Assyria marching through Judah to attack and kill the northern kingdoms, Judah's kind of this sacrificial buffer that Assyria would march on Judah, take their land, and be satisfied and not come and invade these northern kingdoms. So Ahaz, the wicked king sitting on David's throne, hears of this invasion coming from the north, and he is shaking in his boots. That's the background. That's the crisis of Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, so this morning, we're taking a break from the Psalms, and uh, we're going to do something a little bit more festive, a little more Christmassy, given you know the introduction. You might not believe me about that yet, but we are. What I want to do this morning is teach you how to read and to understand prophecy. Um, and to do that, we're going to be looking at a Christmas text from Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. And of course, when I say Christmas story, I'm talking a Christmas story wrapped in uh, political alliances, military, military strategy, diplomats, warriors, prophets, wordplay, miracles, and family. Um, but at the end of it, well, at the end of it, at least if I do my job correctly, We'll have a greater appreciation of the birth of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus Christ that we celebrate and remember this week each year. So go ahead and join me in Isaiah chapter 7. And we're just going to look big picture at Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. We're not going to read all of it, but we'll weave in and out of the text. I'll give you some summaries and interpretations, and we'll just hit the high points of it. Uh, let me just give you the warning up front. I'm not going to overcomplicate things, but we are per putting the school back in Sunday school this morning. We are going to take seriously the command, the great command to love the Lord our God with all of our minds, 
so we can learn how to study his word, love God through his word, and understand his word for ourselves. Uh, so I'm going to start out by reading Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 6. We'll read about all of these alliances that I just summarized, and then we'll see Isaiah come into the scene in verse 3 and start speaking to wicked King Ahaz. So follow along, Isaiah 7, 1 through 6. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelia, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, that's Ahaz, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, this is Isaiah's message to the king, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set the son of Tabeel as a king in the midst of it. So Ahaz is talking to the prophet, Isaiah, and Isaiah says, Don't be afraid of this threat. Don't fear the invasion. God will protect us. In fact, in verse 10, and Isaiah says to King Ahaz, go ahead, ask God for a sign, whatever you want. Make it as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol, whatever you want. Ask God for a sign that he will protect you and the Lord will provide it. And Ahaz replies, I'm not going to put God to the test, which sounds pious, but Isaiah and the Lord see right through that. He's not, you know, being righteous here by not putting God to the test. He's actually just disregarding the Lord. He, has, he doesn't care that God's going to protect them. He doesn't believe that God cares for them, and he does not care for God. He doesn't even see his need for God because he has that secret trump card up his sleeve, right? His alliance with the Assyrians who will come in and protect him. Why trust God when you can trust in the Assyrians? In fact, he would go so far as to take all the silver and gold from the temple in Jerusalem, send it to the king of Assyria, saying, here's all of our treasure, now come and protect us. And so God speaks through Isaiah, and he says this, pick up with me, verse 13, 713. And Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be destroyed. I told you this was a Christmas lesson. God says to Ahaz, right? Okay, even though you don't want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. Here's what the sign is. 
the virgin will conceive. She will bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. And before he's old enough to know right from wrong, that's the choose the good and reject the evil language, he's going to be in this kind of survival existence. He's eating curds and honey. You know, when all the crops have been taken out of the fields, when they're not growing anymore, when all the livestock have been livestock has been slaughtered and you've made your last hamburger, you keep alive two sheep and maybe a cow to give you curds, and you eat what the bees provide in honey. So you always have at least a little bit to eat. He's going to be eating these rations of curds and honey, and that's what you have to live on. And before he's old enough to know right from wrong, these two kingdoms that you fear, Ephraim and Samaria, will be utterly desolate says, you're not afraid of these northern kingdoms, but I am giving a sign that they will not destroy you. A miraculous boy will be born, a boy called Emmanuel, God with us, because he will be the sign that God is with you. He fights for you. He protects you. He will not let this line of David, this Davidic king, be destroyed. Rather, these enemies' lands will be be destroyed instead. So here's how we generally think about prophecy. We think, okay, prophecy is telling the future. So the prophet says, X is going to happen. And then 10 years, 100 years, 3,000 years down the road, X happens. And you're like, all right, prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled, case closed. We're good. We go merrily on our way. That's not usually how prophecy works. Let me show you why we have issues thinking that way. Um, so as soon as I read Isaiah 7:14, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel, your minds all jumped, maybe it's the red sweater, maybe not, to Matthew 1:23, right? The account of Jesus' birth. Um, let me just read starting Matthew 18 so we have a running start here. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 happened when Mary had the child, Jesus Christ, and this is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's Matthew 1, 22 and 23. It's clear. Matthew's right. He doesn't get this wrong. But this complicates things, doesn't it? Because if the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, how does Jesus being born in Bethlehem 730 years after Isaiah spoke these words help King Ahaz to have confidence that the two northern kings aren't going to invade and kill him, right? Of course they're not going to invade and kill Ahaz. Of course their lands and their kingdoms aren't there anymore. It's 700 years later. 
And what about the whole curds and honey thing? Where do you ever read about Jesus eating curds and honey in the scripture? You know, this little toddler not able to know right from wrong, but living in these survival fashions. How in the world can Jesus apply to this prophecy when it seems that he has absolutely nothing to do with Ahaz and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and Rezin up in Syria? We run into problems, don't we? How can Jesus be the sign for Ahaz? when Jesus comes 730 years after this sign is needed. So what I'm proposing is that there's a better way to read prophecy than prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled, and we're done with it. Let me jump back into Isaiah and show you maybe a better way to look at prophecy. Uh, Let me give you two footnotes first. Uh, Number one, my goal this morning is simply to teach you about prophecy. There is a ton going on in Isaiah 7, 8, 9 that we did too many announcements for me to cover or else we're going to bump into the sermon. Uh, So we are selectively editing a lot of stuff out of Isaiah, and it's very sad to do that. But I just want to focus on how we deal with this prophecy. Uh, Second, just to be intellectually honest, Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 are highly debated texts. Um, The view of prophecy that I'm explaining is pretty well accepted. How exactly it fits onto Isaiah 7 is one of the more difficult applications. Um, There's lots of conversation around it about which detail goes where. Um, But big picture, I think we're on the right track here. So back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8. Let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Read along Isaiah chapter 8 with me. Then the Lord said to me, me being Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maharshalel Hashbaz, and get a reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobachiah to attest for me. So Isaiah goes and he rents this massive billboard on the side of the highway. He grabs a couple of witnesses, the priest and the priest's dad, and um, he writes on it, belonging to Maharshalel Hashbaz. And then he goes home to his wife. And then when the text says went in verse 3, go ahead and read everything you can read into that word. Um, It says verse 3, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name, and here we have this name again, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, I would have translated that mama or dada, but, you know, ESV does what they want. Before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Isaiah writes out this name on a billboard, Maharshalal Hashbaz. Lohit's too late, but that's a beautiful name for a boy. Um, and then has a romantic Christmas date with Mrs. Isaiah. Nine months later, she has a bouncing baby boy named, of course, Maharshalal Hashbaz. He makes the prophecy. Nine months later, prophecy comes true. So let, let's just recap, right? What's the prophecy from Isaiah 7.14? What's this sign? Virgin conceives, has a boy, calls his name Emmanuel. What's the sign actually given to King Ahaz? The prophetess conceives. She has a boy. 
there we go. And she calls his name Maharshal al-Hashmi. So it looks like we've hit one out of three parts of this prophecy, right? It's a boy. Um, wrong type of conception, wrong kind of name. But when we deal with prophecy, we also have to deal with the words. A lot of time, prophecy is written in a poetic kind of way, and we're dealing with puns and wordplay and double meanings and multiple definitions. So you have to deal with the language a bit in this. So let's deal with the language of this prophecy. First, we'll deal with the word virgin. So if you watch the History Channel for any of the last three weeks or the next three days, they're going to have some liberal scholar on there saying, well, if you read the book of Isaiah in Hebrew, which I'm sure none of you actually do, you will come across this word meaning Alma is the Hebrew word, and that word doesn't actually mean virgin. What it means is a young woman of childbearing age. So Isaiah isn't saying a virgin's going to conceive. So clearly Jesus isn't special. No reason to trust him. Don't give in to what the Bible says, or at least what preachers nowadays are saying the Bible says. That's basically every Christmas on any historical TV show. Well, let's just affirm they're completely wrong on who Jesus is. But they actually know what they're talking about when it comes to the Hebrew language. Um, the Hebrew language has a technical scientific word for virgin. It's Bethula. That's not the word Isaiah uses. The word here is Alma, which means a young woman generally of childbearing age. And, I mean, culturally, 735 B.C. in Judah, you can assume that she is chaste and righteous, um, but that's not in the meaning of the word. That's just a cultural assumption that you are more than okay of having. So the word is kind of like our English maiden, right? The prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 very well could read, the young woman, the maiden, will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. If that's the case, if we're dealing with double meanings here, then we're at two out of three on the prophecy. That's 66%. We're passing. Um, but, but what about Emmanuel? Anyone know what the name Emmanuel means? God with us. Exactly. Which means it doesn't necessarily have to be a actual proper name. Um, because Maharshal al-Hashbaz means rush to the spoil, run to the plunder. It's a reminder that the northern enemies would be defeated and they would be rushing to the spoil and running to the plunder of these enemies. Yet Isaiah then connects Maharshal al-Hashbaz with this promised son saying that God would be with us. He uses Emmanuel even as a proper name in uh, 8 verse 8. And then in 8 verse 10, the last line, he says that the counsel of these nations would come to nothing because God is with us. That's the last line of Isaiah 8.10. So Isaiah's boy, though technically not named Emmanuel, serves the purpose of Emmanuel. He's being a sign that God is with us. He's proof that God is on their side and fights for them. So let's, let's close up the story of Ahaz, right? Ahaz, <clears throat> wicked king, doesn't want a sign from God that God will protect him from the northern enemies, Rezin and Pekah. God says, I'll provide a sign anyway for you that I will protect you. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. And so Isaiah goes and he predicts that he is going to have a son 
by writing out the name Maharshal Hashbaz, not Susie, where it's a daughter but a son, or Mahar Susie Hashbaz, whatever. Um, and then nine months later, he has a son. Maybe not as climactic as we want this prophecy fulfillment to be, but a legitimate fulfillment. And this son is the sign to King Ahaz, yes, God is going to protect you from your enemies, which he then does. He provides the promise. He provides the sign. God provides the victory. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled but not really, right? Because we still have to deal with Matthew, who says, no, prophecy not fulfilled in Maharshal al-Hashbag, prophecy fulfilled in Jesus, right? Jesus is the son, the sign, the fulfillment of prophecy. But Jesus can't be the sign to Ahaz, because Ahaz is buried and decomposed by the time that Jesus comes along, which brings us all the way back to our understanding of prophecy, right? We often think of prophecy as a arrow and a target, right? You shoot the arrow, it hits the target, we're done. A better way to think about prophecy is, not a dramatic pause, just thirsty. Um, a better way to think about prophecy is an arrow through a target, right? Uh, you know, shooting a bullet through a paper target, maybe. It doesn't stop when it hits the bullseye, but it keeps flying, it keeps going, it keeps getting higher and higher and faster and faster. Um, so they start or they farther a trajectory which keeps getting multiple levels of increasing fulfillment. Um, so Isaiah says, okay, virgin's going to conceive and bear a son. We have a fulfillment in Maharshal al-Hashbaz. But that arrow hasn't stopped. It's flying, looking for something greater. Or the prophet says, okay, there's already this arrow flying. Let me, so like, I don't even know if they make these anymore. One of the, I love having a daughter, wouldn't trade her for the world. But if I had a son instead, we would have Hot Wheels cars, right? And, you know, you put a Hot Wheel car at the top of the hill. It comes down. It does the loop-de-loop. -loop, it goes around the corner. I wonder if my parents still have these. I want these now. And it's starting to lose speed. And then you have that thing that takes like 19 D batteries that has a rubber roller that's spinning real fast. It goes, pshoom, and it shoots back up the hill. A lot of times you're like, yes, I know about the 18 D batteries. That's my entire Christmas budget is spent on D batteries because Hot Wheels are the only thing that use them right now. The prophets often serve as that little amplifier speed thing that take this trajectory and they're going to shoot it farther and faster and in a more specific direction. So for example, if we start looking into this phrase that Isaiah uses, conceive and bear, um, we realize that this is basically only used in miraculous births of important people in the Old Testament. Miraculous either in the fact that the mother was barren and couldn't have kids or the kid should have been killed early on in his life. So you would have this in Eve, cursed with death, but the mother of all things living. You have this in Hagar, who should have had her son killed by Sarah when she got mad at her. And then Sarah. And then Jochebed, Moses' mother. Son should have been killed by Pharaoh. You have it with the mother of Samson. 
and with Hannah, who was barren but still had Samuel. A similar phrase is used with Ruth, who couldn't have kids. Um, she's probably worth mentioning here. So Isaiah is pulling this idea of, okay, there's going to be a miraculous son who's doing significant things to save God's people. He's not pulling it out of nowhere, but he's taking this broad theme, and he's now amplifying it. He's throwing it farther. He's putting it through the target of Maharshal al-Hashbaz, but that arrow is still out there flying of, okay, now we have this trajectory that God is going to save his people through a miraculously born son. There will be deliverance through the son. In fact, Isaiah says as much. If you continue in chapter 8, 816 says, bind up this testimony, steal the teaching among my disciples. There's more coming with it. Don't go ahead and throw out this historical event because we're done with it. He says, there is more coming for my disciples. And once we get to the familiar song of chapter 9, you really get the sense that Isaiah isn't talking about his own son anymore, that we're talking about someone greater. The description that we have of this son in chapter 9 doesn't fit Maharshal al-Hashbaz. Look at Isaiah 9, 6, for example. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is no talk of Isaiah's boy being the mighty God and the everlasting father. There's no talk of him being on the throne of David. Remember, the wicked king Ahaz is on the throne of David, not ruling with peace and justice and equity. So we get here, and we're kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch when he runs into, into Philip, right? Who is this prophet talking about? Is it himself, or is he talking about someone else? Because the prophecy we're reading has surely shifted. It's morphed. It's no longer talking about Isaiah's son, but rather it is setting the trajectory for a much greater fulfillment, a much bigger deliverance through the miraculous birth of a son, a fulfillment where the son will be the perfect king, not an apostate one, where the deliverance won't be temporary for 70 years before they're destroyed, but rather an eternal deliverance defeating our enemies of sin and death and the devil. Isaiah says there's coming a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Yes, another son is coming to fulfill this prophecy, following the trajectory of Maharshal al-Hashbaz, but to a greater purpose and a greater extent of this great prophecy. That is to say, Isaiah fulfills the prophecy in a real, in a legitimate way, that was helpful to King Ahaz and the people of Judah. But when Mary and Jesus come along, we have this fulfillment completely blown out of the water. Christ fulfills it in an extreme, maximal, hyper-fulfillment kind of way. So 730 years later, Jerusalem is still under the oppression of foreign nations, the Romans this time. 
Um, and an angel shows up to a virgin. Not in the, you know, a young woman sent, but in the most specific technical form of this word. And he says, God is going to provide deliverance for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what these enemies that you fear can do to you. I am providing deliverance. You will indeed bear a son and call his name Emmanuel because he is truly God in the flesh with us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Jesus is the sign, but not only a sign, but he is the fulfillment of everything God is doing when God is with us. Not God fighting from heaven for us to protect us from enemies, but rather God being at our side, God taking on flesh, God dwelling among among us, forgiving our sins so that we can dwell with him forever. God experiencing in the flesh the, the weight of the curse of sin, sin, living with us, living for us, dying with us, dying for us, going before us to prepare a place so we can be with him. God rich, God with us, oh, the riches that we have in Christ, that God is with us. We see this in Christ, the miraculous son of the virgin, the fulfillment of Isaiah's great promise of rescue. Oh, that we would look upon him and know the Lord's faithfulness that even when we were astray and did not trust God, he sent proof to us, a sign, a son, to show that he is at work to save his people. He sent this son to be born of a virgin so that sinners like Ahaz and you and me would look to him, would trust in God alone to provide our salvation. So yes, Jesus is born fulfilling the prophecy that Emmanuel would be born, God with us. And I mean, I might, I might jump into Matthew a second, but this arrow doesn't stop flying at Jesus' birth, right? What are the last words of the Gospel of Matthew? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The trajectory hasn't stopped. God is still with us. Praise Jesus. Praise Emmanuel that God is still with us. This, brothers and sisters, is how we should deal with prophecy. This is where prophecy should end, with the glory and the praise and the worship of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let me just recap where we've been and what we've learned, hopefully, what I've taught, maybe not what we've learned, um, about prophecy. So when we come to prophecy, we generally approach it the wrong way. Um, I say generally because there are some exceptions here. Um, but we generally don't want to think the prophet predicts X, 10 years, 9 months, 100 years later, whatever. X happens, prophecy open, prophecy closed, move on with your life. Rather, we want to think the prophet is either starting a trajectory or farthering a trajectory that's going to go through this near bullseye that will help his people in his time for his specific purpose, but then it's going to keep going <clears throat> and growing and growing and growing until all God's promises are the yes and amen. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is fulfilling all of these trajectories. They're coming together. They're rendezvousing in his life, his death, his incarnation, his present reign, his return to earth, his 
future kingdom. All of these prophecies are coming <clears throat> into fulfillment in Christ, which means that we even have some of these trajectories ongoing in our lives today, like Christ being with us even to the end of the age. So as we think about the virgin birth in Isaiah, uh, we don't want to just say, Isaiah predicted in 735 B.C. that a virgin would bear a son and he would be Emmanuel. And then 730 years later, Jesus is born of a virgin. <clears throat> he is Emmanuel. Isn't God great in the Bible true that these things that happened were predicted 730 years beforehand? I mean, we have to say at least that, but we have to say more than that, too. Because we see that this child predicted, Maharshalal Hashbaz, Isaiah's son, hastened to the spoil, rushed to the plunder. He was a sign. He was a confirmation to the king who wanted nothing to do with God, that God would indeed protect his covenant line, the king of David, and that he would care for his people with a covenantal love. The son's birth was an act of sheer, unadulterated grace. Not only did God have no reason to protect his people when the king is wicked and evil, he had no reason to give him a sign that he would protect him. Um, and yet, in God's loving kindness, in his covenantal steadfastness, he gives this sign to his wicked people, and then he indeed saves them. He gives them victory. He shows them that salvation belongs to the Lord. So when we read Matthew saying that all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, we now have a lot more to say that we in our sin are given a sign that God is for us, that God is with us, that those who would trust God rather than put their faith in the Assyrians or whatever we think can protect us instead of trusting in God, that those who put their faith in God through Christ will indeed be saved, that they will indeed have God's promised salvation prophesied in Isaiah, fulfilled in Christ, that we will be with God forever one day and truly experience what it means that God is with us. We are reminded that salvation <clears throat> belongs to the Lord and is only accessible through this miraculous son who was born to the Virgin Mary. So that's how we deal with prophecy. It's more complex. It's more heavy. It's more difficult than maybe prophecy open, prophecy shut. But it also adds a ton of richness and a ton of worship. All of these things coming together, where when we come to Jesus, it's not just a, Okay, predicted, fulfilled, but we have all of these wonderful themes of God's love and God's salvation coming together, wrapped up, and laid in a manger in Bethlehem that we celebrate this Christmas. So I pray that, you know, this lesson, dense and difficult as it was, um, will help deepen your love for God, help deepen your understanding of the scriptures and will cause you to rejoice in Jesus Christ all the more this season.